Let's get back to our subject here, the glory of God. Let's start over in 1 Corinthians 13. You say, what's this got to do with the glory of God? 1 Corinthians 13 here. Start out reading in verse 1. This is a great chapter, so I'll just read through it. Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels and have not charity, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Charity never faileth. But whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there should be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know, even as also I am known. And now abideth faith, hope, and charity, these three, but the greatest of these is charity. Now you know what charity is, right? Charity is love, basically. You say, is that all it is? No, we, we don't really define love well enough, actually. If you go back into some of these other terms, and you got the agape love and the phileo love and all this other stuff. Nowadays, they say, making love. <laughs> Man, what a lie. <laughs> you realize how many people say, I love you, and there's no truth in it, and talk about all that stuff. Love has just been beat to death. It has no meaning whatsoever anymore to us. And that's some of the problem with the Laodicean church also, is how perverted things have become in probably the last 50 to 75 years. You don't think they've been perverted? There's people doing stuff in the open streets of San Francisco that they'd never see the light of day again if they'd have done it 50 years ago. And that's a fact. Mambla. Do you have any idea what that thing is? You wouldn't have dare said anything about belonging to anything like that. And it's still illegal. You say, well, it'll stay illegal. Don't you bet on it. Don't you bet on it. What they want to do is they want to get it down to where you give children the same rights you give adults. That's what they want. Why? For their own benefit. The world is screwed up. It's just an absolute mess. The more you see of it, the more unreasonable it all becomes. You say, what in the world's going on? Well, you've got some insight and the rest of the world don't have. You see things differently than they see them. At least you're supposed to. If you don't, you've got a real problem. But this is my favorite part of this particular chapter. God is love. This is a description of our Father. Look at this in verse 4 through the first part of 8. Our Father suffereth long and is kind. Our Father envieth not. Our father vaunteth not himself, is not puffed up. 
He doth not behave himself unseemly. He seeketh not his own, is not easily provoked. He thinketh no evil. He rejoices not in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. He bears all things. He believes all things. He hopes all things. He endures all things. Our Father never faileth. Now that's Him. I mean, you know that's Him. That description of love right there, you couldn't even get that if you were relating that back to a person. And if we had perfect love, we'd respond just like that back to Him. Seeketh not her own. Oh, God, help me. God, I need more. I'm in trouble. God, help me. That's the way it is right now. It's pretty sad. Our problem is that our faith is small. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Look back over there at verse 12. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face... I know in part, but then shall I know, even as also I am known. What's a glass darkly? Well, if you ever seen a house that caught on fire, the windows get a glass darkly about them. The worse the fire is, the blacker it gets. But basically, it's like taking a piece of glass and having it all sooty and smoked up. That's what it's like. You know, when you're a kid, what you see through? You know what you are when you're a child? I mean, a young child of God or even a little child? You know what that glass darkly is to you? It's a mirror. That's all you see is yourself. It's just me, 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 me. He said, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. Now, the clearest picture we can get as a Christian is to see through this glass darkly. And if you're trying to look through something that's really shaded, you know, it's hard to see. I mean, I've been welding since junior high school. I welded my first project that I still have, and it's a stool, and I did that back in junior high school. I started welding back then. You get a welding helmet, you put that thing on, you can look up at the sun with those things. You just get a a white dot, you know, wherever the sun's at. But that's what it's like almost. And the older you get, the clearer that thing ought to get. You know why? Because you see by faith, it's not by sight. And your faith is supposed to increase, and that glass darkly is supposed to get a little bit clearer as you move along. Now, for your faith to increase, you've got to concentrate what's on the other side of that glass. You understand that? I mean, you have to actually work at it. Somebody says, what's out there? I don't know. I can't hardly see, you know. Well, you've got to concentrate on it and try to make out what's there, what's going on. We see through a glass darkly. What's the problem? Problem is, first of all, it's hard to see. It's like a snowy TV does. Now, some of you don't even know what a snowy TV is. You never even saw one. (laughs) I saw plenty of them when I was a kid. (laughs) We lived real close to Los Angeles. I mean, when I say close, we're 60 miles away, and we could stick an antenna up on our house. We could get channel 2, 4, 5, 9. Yeah, we got 7, too. And we got 11. And uh, most of the time, those things were pretty snowy. Sometimes they were so snowy that you could barely make out what the picture was going on, and you wanted to see it. So what'd you do? You strained at it if you really wanted to see it. You know what you do otherwise? You'd watch something you didn't even want to watch because it was too much trouble to watch something that was that messed up. Did you hear what I said? 
Sometimes when it's too hard to see it, you just watch something you didn't even want to see instead. You're distracted by something else. Why? Because it's easier. So when you're trying to see through a glass darkly as a Christian, you kind of get a little bit tired of it. You just, I give up. (laughs) Let's go back to where I was. Why? Because it's easier. (laughs) What else? It takes work to see through a glass darkly. It takes study, it takes concentration, it takes thought. In this case that we've been talking about the glory of God, it takes more than that, it takes serious prayer. That's what it takes. And the reason it takes serious prayer is because I can't really teach you about the glory of God very well. I'm gonna be real inadequate at it, no matter how hard I try. But the Holy Spirit can teach you about the glory of God, He can. He can reveal to you things that you've never realized in the past. And the great thing about this is that's his primary ministry. His ministry is to magnify God the Father and show you his glory and magnify the Son and show you the glory that God gave him. That's what it's about. When you start asking God to understand more about him and understand why you're here and what he's trying to do and how he benefits and if there's any possible way he can benefit more because he made you and all the great stuff he's done for you and get your mind off yourself and quit looking in the mirror and start trying to see him on the other side of this thing, when you start praying like that, you're right in tune with what he's wanting. Holy Spirit said, well, I heard that one. Oh yeah, I like that. So he give you a little bit. Kid says, I want a piece of candy. Jerry doesn't bring in a big old grocery bag full, you know, and JoJo comes running up for a piece of candy. She don't dump the whole candy bag on him. What'd she give him? Just a little bit at a time. Kid would get sick. He'd be thrown up all over the place. They'd have him down in the emergency room if he ate too much. God knows how to give good gifts to his children. When you start asking God about him, you know what he's going to show you? He's going to show you a little bit. Does JoJo ever get enough? Never has yet. (laughs) Well, that's a kid, see? You don't know when you got enough and when you don't. You got to trust God in these things. Pray about it and say, when the Lord gives you a little bit, you respond to it. I guarantee you, God's never going to give you enough that you're going to try to start using it against him because he knows how to give good gifts to his children. What do you say using it against him? He's not going to put you in a position to where you have any strong influence upon him because he's shown you so much about himself. Now you understand how he feels and how he thinks, and you take advantage of it. I don't know what happened with Satan, but I know one thing. Whatever it was, it sure didn't end up in his favor. God just turned the guy loose and said, okay, now you've got freedom to make your own choices. didn't take him long to mess up. It takes work to see through a glass darkly. And for most of us in this day and time, like I said before, it's different than it was 100 years ago. It really is. And yes, they had problems back then. Yes, they didn't live as long as we live. But I guarantee you they are not busier than we are right here today. I mean, they'd be busy all day long. They had work to do all day long. But it's not the busy kind of stuff that we do. I mean, now it's down to the cell phone, the electronic leash where you're handling stuff every moment. of the day. You can't even concentrate on driving. Why? Because I can get more done, you know. How much more can a person do? Well, the more distracted you are by the world, the less you have time to think about God. Isn't that true? Well, if that's true, what's wrong with the Laodicean church age? That's it. Technology in the last days, knowledge will be increased. God, this sure is a great time we live in with air conditioning and everything else. You think so, do you? Maybe not. Anyway, if you're already busy and you're already worn out, that's just another thing to put on your plate when you're already full. 
You know, it's like go back for seconds and you want just a little tiny bit of this, a little tiny bit of that, and somebody's there in the serving line putting big piles back on there. I don't want it. I don't want it. You know, you come to church. What'd you come to church for? I came to relax. I came here. I want to feel good when I leave. I don't want you putting more on my plate. I got enough to do now. Matter of fact, I'm sitting here writing notes trying to figure out how to organize next week because I'm bored with what the preacher said. I already heard that one 20 times over the last 50 years. I don't need that again. I need to organize next week. You don't think that's going on in churches across this country? You better believe it is. (laughs) I get a little bit bored, and what are you thinking about? Everything else in the world, you're trying to stay involved, and there isn't any effort trying to see through a glass darkly. What else? You're already doing enough. So what do you mean by that? If you're already working yourself to death, and especially if you're doing stuff a lot for the Lord, the more you do for God, the less likely you're going to try to see through that glass darkly. You're going to be so busy with God's work, you're going to not have any thought whatsoever about Him. You think I'm kidding you? I'm not kidding you a bit. You replace God with His work real easy. That's just natural for a human being. They comparing themselves among themselves and by themselves are not wise. Guy says, you need to start trying to see past this glass darkly and see what's on the other side. You say, I'm already doing enough. I'm already in church three times a week. I'm already giving all my tithes. I'm witnessing on the job. I'm doing all of this other stuff, you know. I'm loving God the best way I know how. I'm putting forth every effort that I can put forth. No, that's not what you're supposed to do. What are you supposed to do? Set your affections on things above. Is there anybody here that thinks their affections are actually set on things above? I mean, you really feel that? You might feel it for a flicker or two. There might be times when you sing a song and for that moment, your affections actually, for a very brief moment, set on things above. Well, that's what you're supposed to be doing all the time. You're supposed to get them off of things down here and get them up there. That's what's supposed to happen. But you're already wore out. You're already doing God's work. And the real problem, the biggest problem is we're still more important to us than he is. We just are. You find yourself thinking about how it affects you and what you've got to get done, and all of a sudden you realize that your plans and organization or how to fix things and make things better for yourself, you go through the whole week. You haven't even thought about God hardly at all. Your prayer in the morning. God help me today and bless me and forgive me my sins. Help me with this effort. Help me with that. Keep me safe on the road. Protect my house. Protect my family. Keep on working on so and so. I mean, it's just. How many of you prayed this last week? God, benefit more because you made me somehow. I would just love to know that you think I'm worth making. How much time do you spend praying like that? You're still looking in a mirror. You're not even trying to see through the glass darkly. It's just all right here. When we start to feel uneasy about our devotion for God, we begin to justify ourselves by our works. You start looking at all you do. If any of this stuff that I'm saying to you makes you feel this sense of, I know that's right. Well, I really ought to do something about it. You know what happens? You begin to fight that sense of conviction. Look at everything I'm already doing for him. Well, he thinks he's always right. Well, I've been doing this stuff for years. He's only been saved for 34 years. I've been saved for 68 years. (laughs) I heard one guy, he said, 
I've been saved all my life. <laughs> I said, what? He said, I've been saved all my life. I said, you telling me you were born saved? <laughs> Almost. I didn't have a clue what salvation was. Anyway, we start to feel uneasy. That's exactly what we do. We start looking at everything we do for him. The minute the Holy Spirit comes along and says, you know he's telling you the truth. You know Brother Mark's right. You know you ought to be acting on what you hear. Instead of just being a hearer of the word, you ought to start doing some of it. But the first argument we put up is, and we're already doing a whole bunch. Look at everything else we're doing. He must be talking to them other guys. Like I tell Brother Mark, great message. If they'd have been here, you'd have got them. <laughs> Who's this stuff for? It's for the ones who care. You know who cares? You guys do or you wouldn't be here. It ain't for the ones who don't care. It doesn't work that way. What else? If the conviction doesn't stop, we fight back with how much more we're doing than the others or how right we are when they're all wrong. What do you mean by that? I've been in churches where the prime thing is we're unique. Why? We're doctrinally correct. Look at everything we do for God and they don't do for God. We're right about which book. We're right about the missionary stance. We're right about our standards. We wash feet around here. Nobody else does that. We got to be better than them. That's what happens, comparing themselves among themselves and by themselves. Once again, I know I'm already doing a lot for God, but not only that, look at how much more I'm doing than these other guys. You know, sometimes that conviction won't stop at that. In fact, most of the time it doesn't. Holy Spirit just sees right through those arguments. But then last of all, you kill off conviction with, what will everybody else think? You know how many times the Holy Spirit spoke to you about coming down here and praying? And you didn't come? Nod your head if you know I'm right. Am I the only one? <laughs> no, I see some heads nodding. What would everybody else think if I got down there on my knees? That I've got some hidden secret sin? Yeah, like I don't love God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, with all my strength. Some secret sin where I love me more than I love him. I think, man, oh man, I need to be down there too. Boy, if they're going down there, whew, I thought they were right with God. <laughs> you never know what God will use. And we don't have to wait until we all get to heaven to get beyond ourselves. We don't have to do that. Anyway, look over in Jeremiah chapter 9. Jeremiah is a character. The guy is something else. I almost feel sorry for him, you know. It's kind of like Job when he's going through the pits or something. Except I don't even see that much pride in Jeremiah. I just see pure frustration in this poor guy. He's just eaten up with this message and he's out there and he gets no results the whole time. How many times would you plant a garden if every single time you planted it, that thing just came up and then died and came up and died and came up and died? You finally just give up. So I'll just go buy my stuff. This is more trouble than it's worth. Anyway, chapter 9, verse 23. Thus saith the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. What's he saying there? Wise man, what is that? Somebody has a lot of intellectual wisdom, be able to understand men, be able to be a CEO of a corporation, 
control and manage major things. Everything rises and falls on management. If you don't think so, go over here to this burger on Nine Mile Road and then go up to the one up 29. If you don't think it all rises and falls on management, those two stores are right next to each other nearly. And one of them is run, you know, like a, I don't know what. They run into the ground. That's how it's being run. (laughs) And the other one up there, you go up there and they're all cheerful and happy and perky and the food's fresh and it tastes good. And you go down here and you stand there at the counter while they're on the phone talking to their friends. They see you walk up and they go back in and hide. What's that? That's all rising and falling management. Now you get somebody that's really intellectual. Henry Ford was one of the great examples of this. He could figure out a way to build cars faster and better and make tons of money and come up with some other ways to save money. I mean, he was taking the wood scraps off the cars, turning it into charcoal and all kinds of other crazy things. I mean, he was just basically an efficiency expert is what he was. He was highly intellectual. He was very intelligent. He says, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. What else? He says, the mighty man in his power. What do you say, mighty man? I'm talking about somebody with real power and control. There's people who have the ability to destroy other people's lives. You know that? I heard one guy talking about getting rich, and he talked about getting to where they're millionaires and multimillionaires and billionaires and multi-billionaires, you know? They said that you get to the point where you're that rich. They said, what else is there to do? And the guy said, control people. I thought, man, what a weird way to go. You'd think when somebody got super rich that their mentality would be to enjoy what they've earned. But it ain't. They want another challenge. And it gets to the point where they actually feel a sense of accomplishment when they're capable of controlling lives and controlling people. And some they set up and some they tear down. I mean, that's got to be connected to Satan. And then lastly, talks about don't let the rich glory in their riches. Harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle and a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven and all that stuff. That's because that wealth replaces God. I mean, it just simply does. And there's almost no way you can keep from it happening. I mean, it would take a major effort for a rich guy. If that guy ain't saved, for him to get saved, it'd be just, that'd be one of them double, triple miracles. You say, could it happen? Yeah, but it's really hard. Why? Don't need anything. Verse 23 is really leading to verse 24. We'll look into that next week. Let's close in prayer.